Welcome, everybody. This is Pi Data Manchester, episode 16. I'm Jennifer Stark, and I'm here with Pi Data Manchester co-organizer, John Carney. Hello. For today's guest, we have Adam Fletcher, who's a data science consultant at Equal Experts here in Manchester. Hi. Adam and... Thanks for having Thank you for coming. Um, Adam earned his bachelor's in biology from the University of Manchester and then stayed on to do a PhD in biomolecular sciences, where he used directed evolution and 3D modelling to alter enzyme specificity. During his PhD, he also worked as a molecular diagnostic scientist at Premetha Health, Manchester Science Park, for two years. Adam then went on to do a two-year postdoc at the Cancer Research UK Manchester Institute before joining Equal Experts as a data analyst. Welcome, Adam. Anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, that was a pretty comprehensive like history of my uh, scientific career and then career into a data scientist. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Sorry, can I can I just interject with the first question? I, I, I never do this anymore. But Adam, what's directed evolution? Directed evolution. So rather than um, so usually with uh, normal evolution, there's no sort of uh, there's no sort of. De- destination with with evolution in the classic terms so you get changes to like a protein structure and stuff that may have an effect may not have an effect with directed evolution we literally um had a goal in mind and then started changing uh, uh, the um the amino acids in a protein structure with the idea that we were selecting for it to be better at doing something cool i have many many questions but this is a data science podcast. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure we'll get to it yeah, I, th- I think if the the first question normally is is playing uh, is doing that actually better than playing God, and um, no, it t- turns out time is a very good way of filtering out bad things, whereas directed evolution and not very much time over a PhD isn't. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, uh, so it is quite unusual to have another job while doing a PhD. So how did that come about? So I knew um, some of the people that I ended up working with from my undergraduate. So I did a, a placement for for a year while doing my undergraduate degree and just sort of um, started talking to, to those people again. And they, um, they offered me a, um, a job as a, like a research scientist there. I was like more than happy to take them up on that. Um, the... The, the funniness came around is because um, my funding for my PhD started running out as I started like, wanting to get a job. But the way science sometimes works is that my funding ran out, but the research still needed doing. Right. So there was this beautiful time in my life where I was finishing at five o'clock my job in a research lab, cycling back to the university, working till 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night in the university. Oh my gosh. And then going home. I've got fond memories of uh, myself and my girlfriend were talking about uh, the number of times where she would meet me after work and help do some of the washing up of some of my experiments or would come with takeaways or while my bacteria were were growing, (laughs) we would watch Netflix until they were at the right kind of density to harvest them. Um, It was... uh, it was necessary to get the PhD, but it's not something I'm willing to, like, I'm wanting to repeat anytime soon. Yeah, and they say science is fine. That sounds... Structural issues there. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds very, very hard. Wow. Um, so one of the projects that you did there um, was applying SVM or support vector machines to classify samples as positive or negative for Down syndrome, was that your first foray into machine learning or what uh, was? Unbeknownst at the time, yes. So, um, like... It creeps up on you, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, so I didn't make the support vector machines. So that, that that's quite a part of, like, the, a, a well-known kind of... Um, it, there's a lot of publications and stuff around that. That, that was not part of my... Um, of, of what I did uh, at that moment in time, I was, um, sort of in the lab scientist. So, um, so what, what I did was a lot of testing around that. And then through, through trying to look at, at what points the, um, the support vector machine kind of broke down 
and it was unable to uh, to detect between a, a a positive sample or a negative sample or no sample and a sample um and then that sort of got me into um using some of the, the programming languages so like um th th this place used um primarily r so started um so that, that just kind of got my curiosity and went oh well rather than doing excel for some analysis why don't i use r or why don't i use r instead of um, spss or something like that um just gave me a bit more power and then it just thought the kind of ball kept kept rolling as i kind of wanted to learn a bit more and more and then uh wanted to kind of transition to being a bit more uh, I wanted to keep the the kind of lab science at that point, but also transition more into the computational and um, statistics side of things too. Oh, that's really cool. Um, do you want to say a little bit about what a support vector machine is? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so um, so a support vector machine is um, rather than um, like a line of best fit where you're trying to fit um, a line or a curve to some data, I normally think of a support vector machine as instead of that, you're trying to fit a line to as best distinguish between two two or more populations. So um, so it's, it's sort of a best fit line or a best fit curve in between two populations rather than um, over the top of one population. And that, 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 works That's brilliant. In, that works in two dimensions, but then if you go to three dimensions, think of it as a sheet. And then beyond that, you're in the theoretical maths kind of realm of looking at a four-dimensional straight plane, which kind of yeah. jumbles my brain. I find it really hard to think beyond beyond the three D. Um, the favorite, my favorite technique I've heard for doing that is you just think it, you think of it in three dimensions, then you say n dimensions very loudly, and that's it. That yeah, that yeah, that tends to be like when I, when I've kind of d explained support vector machines before like you just sort of go oh yeah like you can make the jump from two to three so you just can't visualize <laughs> it but four to five is fine <laughs> keep going like that until it's yeah whatever silly number yeah yeah so how did you go about um learning how to use r then was was there were there people in the lab that were able to sort of mentor you through that or did you use learning resources online or what did you do so at that at that point, yeah, there were um, there were some bioinformaticians in the lab. So they they were completely pure um, computational kind of scientists, whose 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 job were to um, uh, basically analyze DNA sequencing data and trying to um, and that, that like and come up with the kind of new new pipelines for for this Down syndrome test. And and they were they were really happy to help. And um, in addition to that, just. The, the usual things like the University of Stack Overflow and um, and yeah ge general general googling the problem but the, uh, the the thing that that's always the the stumbling ground for learning your first programming language is figuring out what the names of the the, the actual proper name of the uh, the error that you're trying to solve is so like for sure the first time trying to reshape a data frame you're going okay i don't really know what a data frame name truly is i i, I know it as a spreadsheet from excel and i, I want to sort of turn it to make the columns the rows but i don't know the right term for that in r and so so that that was more of the of the issue and then when it when it came from in equal experts moving from r to python you sort of already know the nomenclature, so you can just look for. I want to pivot a data frame in Python, and the the command's right there. But learning to know what to Google is a is a hard one. Absolutely, um, I think the the Google foo is what uh, differentiates um, <laughs> a, a junior from a. From a senior, <laughs> it's just it's just knowing what to look for, yeah. Um, and it it can really make a big difference. It's always so difficult with R as well because when you type in R error, you it's, you just type R with with Python or pandas. It's always you've got there's more of a boast, but R just a single letter. I I found that was very difficult when I was learning. But R stats or maybe Tinyverse. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tinyverse. Those would all be much better suggestions than what I yeah. came up. Yeah, it, no, it's really it is really really hard, especially if you don't you just like, don't have the language. Um, to know what you're looking for to start with, it becomes it becomes a whole journey in itself, figuring out the language before you can mm. figure out then how to ask the question. Um, 
Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It's yeah. really great having, uh, it sounds similar to my situation where we were, um, well, we were trying to do science during um, a recession. And so they're trying to save money by not paying for, you know, new licenses for various things. We moved to R. Um, and yeah, same, similar thing. We're very lucky to have someone on hand who was familiar with R or at least able to teach himself quickly so he could teach us. Um, and that was brilliant. That was my first foray into R and it was, yeah, never looked back. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely really helpful when someone can kind of, you can bounce what the problem you're trying to solve is and they can direct you just mm-hmm. enough to get your foothold and go, right, I know what I'm sort of doing now. And um, R, because it's less popular than Python, there's, there's, some, there's, there's less resources for it. And I, I'm, I'm from biased opinion now but from from now learning python there's it's a lot less user-friendly especially for to a beginner as well and what r is i think i find r less user-friendly than python i've heard that because now that they've gone to the tidyverse um sort of structure it's a lot it's improved it a lot i think yeah definitely i would i would definitely agree with that but, um, but I think the first language is always the hardest, though, isn't it? Yeah, that 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 that's probably that's probably biasing my perception. Like I just remember like struggling for an entire day, and then the only thing that came out of it was a for loop or something like that. <laughs> that is still success. Still happens to me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you took a very academic route into data science. Um, uh, and me and John Ruth have PhDs and moved into data science. Um, in, well, I took a, sort of a longer longer way around than, than John did and, and yourself. Um, but how did you make the journey from academia into data science and industry? Uh, I, I, I really like that I, I took a very academic route because when I was in academia, apparently I took the very professional science route and turned went into academia because I had a lot of industry experience. So, so rather than rather than, <laughs> than my stellar publication record going into a postdoc, I had a lot of industrial experience, which got me, which got me there. So I, I, li- I like that right. now that I'm back in industry, I've got a very academic uh, background. <laughs> it comes full circle. Yeah. So, um, so my journey through through academia. So I, I took the um, I moved from from industry back into back into academia um wanting to kind of um increase my my knowledge of using kind of next generation dna sequencing technologies in the lab with then the uh, being able to back that up with with doing computational analysis and statistics and and some of the unsupervised machine learning techniques that go along with um looking at kind of cancer subpopulations and and um and looking at interactivity between um between like different cancer pathways and, and resistance mechanisms that is um that is kind of what drove me to go back into academia if i wanted to be able to uh, to do both the lab work and the computational work and then as i started doing more and more lab work during my postdoc it became more and more apparent that i was like unlike some of the my the other postdocs in my lab i like who loved the lab work i was doing the lab work to do the computational analysis like that it was a means to an end of I, I the lab work was tolerable but the like as soon as i got to a computer and could fire up r and have a play with the data afterwards that was when the fun began to me whereas i know a lot of people found it the other way and then as i started wanting to improve i started having a look at like kaggle competitions or other other kind of online resources about machine learning and then i just kind of flipped to me that the thing I liked was playing with data. Like, it wasn't it wasn't so much what I was doing, um, which which is a shame. Like, but at the same time, taking myself away from that is I'm now taking up someone's spot whose dream it is to work for CIUK, and I've come to the realization that I can get excited about shopping data as I can for cancer data. It's it, I'm, I feel like I'm taking someone's spot. Mm. No, that's valid. Um, it does take all kinds of people, uh, but I can definitely relate to you there. When, when I would just analyze data to to death, <laughs> maybe because I'm just I, I'm, I know there's something in there, you know, and I can just 
I'd really enjoy figuring out all these different ways of, of analyzing it or, or learning how to use um, new R packages and discovering there's this really niche one that's perfect for what I need. And I just get really excited about that, maybe more so than the actual um, question I was trying to <laughs> trying to answer. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so what, one, one thing that is, uh, it, it cropped up on Friday that's still from coming in from from academia of uh, like the, the the kind of tradition with academia is that there's no real hard deadlines you the work gets done when it gets done kind of kind of kind of thing and especially when you're looking at so if i'm looking at dna sequencing data from a clinical sample that's a very precious sample so i've got to use everything i can from it and i've got to make the data the best quality it can be whereas this, like other data sets when you get to industry there's um like 50,000 rows, a million rows. Like the, the question then became of, I was treating like hundreds of thousands of rows, like there was four, like in a, in a, in a cancer data set. I've got, I've got, I've going, and then I, I basically had to ask my boss their opinion, like my, uh, his opinion on when do you stop with cleaning data? Cause I'm just used to, it can always be more clean and like, and that always makes it better because your data is so precious. Mm. Whereas, whereas your time doing something else now is the more precious bit. And there's a there's a there's a certain point at which you have to stop. And I just haven't I haven't quite got the experience to find that yet. Of when do when do I switch off being academic and go actually back to being a um, like a, a consultant? Right. I think that's that's an important um, point there. That you know when when do you stop? trying to clean the data and, and I think you know when when the gains are smaller than the work put in to clean it um you might argue that that's a good place to stop cleaning it but then on the other hand you can't know that until the at the end of the analysis so, so when you've um, validated your model and and sometimes um you, you go you go around and you go you sort of clean it and then you do your analysis and then you you find out later that it's not it it's not great and you have to go back and clean it a bit more and then try and analyze it again and um i don't know if you've ever had that experience but it's a very difficult it's a very difficult um question to answer like as to when to stop cleaning it mm. yeah definitely i've i've just i've sorry jennifer I was just going to say, I imagine it'll be, it's a different answer depending on, you know, for each different um, project that you're working on. Yeah, it's just proving a very difficult habit to break of the data now isn't as scarce as it was in academia. Yeah, I think Jennifer's right. It's something that lots of people deal with. Um, at one of our events um, last year, maybe the year before, it's been a while, uh, but Bertil Hart um, wrote a almost a treatise, a treatise manifesto, uh, a very informative piece about um, all the various ways in which data can be dirty. And um, we'll make sure to link it in the show notes. But it's kind of coming from that was the idea that um, data isn't really clean ever. Like for every single task you want to do, it needs to be clean, inverted commas, in a slightly different way. Uh, I think that's one of the things that can be quite the, quite the difficult challenge to break like you were saying, Adam, about um, trying to make sure it's in the, the optimal quality, uh, the best possible thing, just trying to figure out that, okay, is this good enough? Because there are so many things, um, like, for example, running A-B tests, no matter what you do, the, in all of the time and effort you do, um, you won't you won't manage to, uh, to replicate laboratory conditions doing an A-B test for an e-commerce website or whatever. But also it doesn't matter because customer behaviors are changing all the time anyway. So there's not some fundamental biological or physical truth that you need to get to anyway. So it's it kind of it, it kind of on the one hand feels a little bit pointless, but also it makes it much easier to get something that's a little bit useful. Um, and it's really hard to keep all these things in mind when you're still coming out of academia trying to do something useful and proving to your boss that you, you're worth paying. It's it's yeah, um, it's like yeah, what is it? The imposter effect can uh, can set it, and it's. It's just the imposter effect. I was definitely going to say that of the uh, I've been out of academia in, in in kind of data science for a year, and the imposter syndrome is still real. Mm. I, I I can't imagine it going away anytime soon. But I don't think it ever goes away. I've spoken to um, 
senior people uh, who still experience imposter syndrome. Um, I think for people who have inquiring minds that are always trying to learn and improve, there's always that space where you could, because you know, you don't know everything there, then there's a space in your mind for yourself to think that you don't know anything. <laughs> and it's the, it's the Kruger-Denning effect where you, you think earlier on, you think you know everything. And then you then late, after you know quite a lot, then you feel like you don't know anything. Mm. Um, so I guess it makes sense from that perspective. Uh, just, just got to feel like, just got to know that everyone or a fair percentage of people have it. And so it's just a normal thing and it's not anything to get too worried about. Just acknowledge it's there and then and yeah. and then move on. I've, I've found working with like some, I've found working with some really good people has helped me with that. And hopefully I've helped them with that in that we all know there's lots of things we don't know, but we are comfortable that there are lots of things that we are very good at, even if it's harder to remember that as well. Um, and that makes it easier to be like, okay, well, I am, I am worried about this stuff that I don't know, but I am more confident that I can do the other stuff. Yeah, that's really good. Cathcart Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds, Manchester and Edinburgh, covering all things tech, but with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. They're good at what they do. They are one of the rare companies that understand what their candidates do. Cathcart sponsor Pydata Manchester, Pydata Edinburgh, Mancomel, Scottomel, and are a beating heart in the data community. You can check out their website in the show notes. Um, so aside from that, then, Adam, were there other things that you found really challenging from your move from academia to industry? Um, yeah, what, one of the the, thing, the the hardest things I found was, um, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this if you're beginning in data science, is getting your first foot in the door. Mm. Oh, yeah. Of when, when, I, when I went from academia to industry, I wanted to make the move to kind of consultants and companies who were applying for jobs all they see is a, a postdoctoral researcher and so they say oh you've got no industry experience that like how is academia relevant to industry and you don't have um you you don't have all of the skill sets required to be a a, a data scientist and so, so i i literally had to beg consultants to kind of take on my, my CV and apply for jobs and things. And it, it felt like a, a real uphill struggle. And then as soon as I got data analyst on my CV and on my LinkedIn, I'm now fighting people away. So that's a, it's a very weird, I found that, I found that a real challenge of actually trying to get your voice heard when you're moving from academia into industry is. Yeah. Cause, cause people, people like people seem quick to discredit you that, all you're doing is academic and that's not real world relevant mm. i don't understand that at all i mean that's a real gatekeeper problem isn't it um that they I, I honestly like i hear this a lot that it happens um and i don't understand why that perception exists that that, that the perception that people coming from academia are not like it's not related to real world problems i mean there's so many um transferable skills that you get from doing a phd um, and, and it just baffles me. <laughs> so anyone out there listening who's having trouble, um, you're not alone and it doesn't make any sense. And just know that your skills are relevant in industry as a data scientist and to keep trying. What, what 100%. Um, the, the, the funny thing I always find, I, I found was trying to go from industry back to academia to do my postdoc that was a hard one because people didn't want to, people didn't want to listen because I, oh, I'm an industrial scientist now. So oh my you, you're not going to be that inquisitive. And then going back to industry, it was, oh, like, but you're not going to work to any deadlines and you don't know, you, you only know how to oh. like, be in your ivory tower. So yeah, I've experienced it both ways. So oh my gosh, you can't win no matter what. Oh my gosh. So can academia and industry ever be friends? Um, baffling yeah luckily <laughs> luckily the lab group i moved to at cancer research was kind of very industry orientated as well as doing some um very good kind of basic research which was great mm. um and i, I know uh, university of manchester have a institute of data science don't they now which is um a lot of collaboration between academia and industry so hopefully that will 
lead to some changes, at least in Manchester. Mm. Uh, so did Liverpool as well, at least with the uh, geographic data side. Oh, yeah. That's true, yeah. Um, so a lot of people may be unfamiliar with Equal Experts. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about who they are and what they do? Yeah, of course. Um, so Equal Experts is primarily a software consultancy. So um, clients will, will kind of engage with Equal Experts and um, they'll send um, consultants uh, are kind of on site to, to help them with their, with their issues, whether that be trying to determine what, what kind of software needs building or actually building it themselves uh, through to kind of training people up. Um, to, on how to kind of look after and maintain the software after they've finished rather than just be embedded for life and, and constantly trying to, to accrue money from a client. We will try and empower the client back to kind of owning their own destiny. Um, with regards to uh, myself as a data scientist at Equal Experts, this is quite a new um, kind of venture where um where we set up in equal experts the data studio um and that's kind of a a little bit like we call it a business unit inside equal experts where we're we're kind of offering data specific tasks um to to clients who need a help with their with their data or if a software project all of a sudden has needs for kind of a machine learning application or some data like complex data analysis or even just some advice on how they can move forward with some data or i've even had people ask me they're wanting to start up collecting collecting data what kind of things would be useful for a data scientist or in order to kind of start using data to drive decisions when it's available so like we've i've, I've gone through the whole kind of a plethora of scenarios where it's come come from doing some analysis to helping set the groundwork for later doing some analysis. That's brilliant. Um, and it's really cool that they that you're able to help people set that groundwork because um, a lot of the difficulties for for like the first data scientist on a team is that they're given data and and there's not really a clear task and the data isn't quite not quite appropriate for the task and it's just very messy um so if people are asking how to set set up for that that's brilliant yeah that's been it's been really interesting one of the one of the other things that i've done a, f a few times like that is um going in for um we're calling me the discovery or inception phases where we'll we'll go go down and kind of pin down with the client what they actually want because sometimes they 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 know what they want but when you start talking to them and digging into it they're they're actually they want something else but just didn't know it mm. and um that that's been that's been really interesting especially with data data's really helpful to kind of prove the prove a point or help kind of surface some insights to them during that phase as well brilliant um so what do you do day to day as a consultant data scientist at, at equal experts so um, a lot of what I've been doing for Equal Experts is I've been on um, a lot shorter engagements than the typical um, software developers. So like the average length of my project has been probably four weeks. So I've done some slightly larger and some have gone down to be only being a few days um, where I'll, I'll basically... It, so it comes in two basic flavors, really, of one, I'll get parachuted into, here is all of my data, it's a mess, can you do something with it, please? Um, which is really fun, but is is quite hard to kind of pull, piece together what what everything means, especially if, so they've got a like an incredibly com complicated and convoluted kind of SQL database, but none of the keys matching each other. So you have to sort of guess. Or you're, you're matching timestamps to like index values or like doing some incredibly nasty joins back to kind of piece together what you think the data should look like. And the the other the other type of like project I've mainly been on is as I've is the, the kind of discovery project where they will um, not particularly know what they what they want to solve properly so that they've got they've got a basic idea but they 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 don't know 
they don't know if that's the right idea and they don't know how they're going to get there. So we'll, so I'll come in, start having a look at what's available and then start trying to figure out possible options, how we could get there and then kind of flesh out a delivery with them. Um, I've done that a few times, whether or not that's been me doing the delivery or someone else doing the delivery, but coming in and meeting the clients, trying to get get a, a handle on what the what the users actually want. Uh, a lot of this has been more more on the data engineering side than the data science side, but the but f- trying to figure out what kind of end predictive model they want is really is a really interesting uh, kind of problem. Even if you don't have that much data up front, trying to trying to piece together the journey and navigate company politics as well, which is uh, <laughs> definitely a I would easily say the hardest part of the job is that the yeah. m- most most of the the hurdles that you face are not technical ones. Are you able to give any examples or no? Um, I I did a two week data discovery at one point where I didn't they didn't let me have any data. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Wow, how did you navigate that? I, I focused my time on other aspects of the of the project that were going on while repeatedly trying to email for access. But yeah, we, we just kind of pivoted on on what we could do and tried to make the, the the best. So that was that was where data was one angle into for the project. So so I could I could use my kind of resources into into kind of proving or disproving other areas, not so much focusing on the data aspect of the project. Um, are you able to share kind of an example of going kind of start to, or at least from your perspective, the start to the finish of an engagement um, without naming any names, like what the problem was, how you approached it, um, just so people who, are, who haven't had the ex- experience of going as a data science, a data analytics consultant, can get a flavor. Yeah, I don't have that much experience of of, of being there right at the start, and then well, I, I don't have any experience of just, being there just, right just, at the start. Just the and start then... from from your from the start of your experience, not from the start of a whole project, just from from where you started. Okay, um, so the, if you're being parachuted into a project right like mm. right at the beginning, and there's loads and loads of open doors, or even worse, if someone has a, a door that you they want you to go through, that is a that is a major kind of red flag that you need to question why that's the right door to go through. Even if it ends up being the right door to go through, at least you know that you've done the due, due diligence to get there. Mm. Um, it's much more helpful when they when they kind of let you do almost anything to uh, to try and figure out the right direction. But that's much more daunting. Um, so how would you go because, about figuring out what the right direction is? So uh, normally one of the first things we try and uh, I try and do is navigate. Um, so if we're coming in to look at the data aligning a process uh, or, or wanting a predictive a predictive model is mm-hmm. is to, to, to replace something is look at how it's done currently. So mapping out um, even if it's people, uh, emailing spreadsheets to each other or manually typing things into a database, getting an aspect, uh, getting a, a handle on each step in that process, uh, capturing it down, and then talking to people who do different different parts of that, trying to figure out if they've got any tips and tricks, or if they're if if they um, if they have problems or things that they find really easy, so you can. So you can try and take away the, the the terrible bits of what they're of of what they're doing for their job. Of if if someone has to copy and paste manually from one database to another because there's no connection between them, so it, it relies on now manual entry. If that's an area where you go, okay, I could add value in there. That's that that's a simple potential Python Python script, or uh, or anything that can can solve that problem, and then. And then once you've got kind of that process mapped of what's actually happening, you can then start looking at, okay, what what can we do now? What how can we make that process better? 
um, delivering what it's currently doing and then how can we go above and beyond to try and add more to what it's already doing so so then you've got this nice kind of path through mm. cool that makes sense so a nice um, relatively iterative um, roadmap I suppose which makes a lot more sense when you say it out loud than it does when you speak to clients <laughs> De- definitely but uh, yeah, I would I would definitely highlight the do your due diligence, even if you've had on day one in meeting one an answer of you should make this. Mm. Don't take their word for it. Just say, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not thinking about a solution right now. I'm thinking about what the problem is. Mm. So can you tell me what problems arisen to lead you to that solution? I just want you to take a step back. You've been in this uh, in this industry a lot longer than me. You need to you need to kind of bring me up to your speed. Mm. I mean, that must be one of the really challenging things about dealing with so many clients in so many different sectors. Uh, yeah, uh, gaining kind of domain knowledge quickly is a uh, is always a is always an issue. Yeah, so yeah, saying that just sort of introducing very quickly on that you're probably going to ask what is to them some quite basic questions Mm. but you're just trying to kind of lay the ground that i'm really i really need to know what's going on i'm happy to learn like i i can see that it might get frustrating for them for the sixth time trying to explain what an acronym is um but that's another another key bit of advice that i I was given and and really enjoy that whenever you hear an acronym in it from from a client write it down immediately and have a glossary of acronyms mm. um little tiny thing but it really makes a difference if you can start absorbing the the client's way of speaking quickly it really really massively help it really helps i still struggle with i don't know how you do that with those different companies because <laughs> you know i just work in one company and there's so many different divisions um like sales marketing uh content writing um and I'm still asking them for, <laughs> there, there should be a problem with loads of acronyms. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, what what is this? Um, and uh, yeah, I should, writing them down would help me retain them, but there's always new ones popping up. Um, so yeah, I really respect that. That's really impressive. The, 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 the problem you have is sometimes companies will use, or in different areas of the company, will use the same acronym for doing yes. different things. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but ju- just hold your hands up and go. Which one of those do you mean? Do you like, <laughs> like, do you mean this one or, or, or that one? They, they 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 mean quite different things. Yeah, for sure. That could lead to uh, some significant problems, couldn't it? Otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you still use R in your work today, or is it uh, mostly Python? I try and use R when I'm not collaborating with other software engineers, because I'm okay. I'm well aware that like when if I'm in a larger project, the chances are that if especially if it's across multiple disciplines, that Python will be a common language between everyone. That's been gotcha. that's been my typical experience. Whereas if you're asking a front end developer if they know R, R or it doesn't especially if you're on a small project and sort of you're all kind of pitching in with each other's jobs a little bit um asking them if they know this very unfamiliar niche statistical language can be a like a a bit of an issue so normally it's just right. e- it's it's normally just easier to say um i use python I'm, I'm i'm happy to use python but if i'm doing something on my on my own to kind of keep that um that tool sharp i'll force myself to use r even though I I now feel I'm more comfortable with Python. All right, that's cool. And I, I apologize now for saying R is a niche language, but outside of data science, it is. It's so powerful though, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is a really powerful statistical language. It's absolutely brilliant for like yeah. for what it does. It's got some really great charting libraries as well. Yeah, but I, yeah, I just feel if you're in a multidiscipline project, asking a back-end developer or a ux developer to understand r can be is a bit of a tall order when everyone when when the chances are you know python and they know python yeah that makes sense 
um, I mean, as as Pi Data, uh, we're um, you know the organization is for all things open source, which includes R. Um, yeah. So Pi Data is definitely supportive of of R as well as Python. Um, but that makes a lot of sense how you decide which one to use. Um, and it's really cool that you you try and keep your R skills sharp because that, I mean, that's a really cool language. So, um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, you've applied. Yeah. Sorry. So, so one of the, uh, one of the, the small, smaller projects I was, I was on was, it was me and another data scientist and they had a preference for R. So if I hadn't have used it for eight months, I, my, my skills would have been really rusty and most of the first week would have been trying to get my kind of skills back up to scratch and would have lost ground. So especially in a lot of these projects where I get parachuted in and I'm expected to go from zero to a hundred very quickly, kind of keeping the skill set sharp uh, is a very, uh, uh, is, is a necessity. Yeah. Um, so you've applied a broad range of statistical and machine learning methods in your work, including customer segmentation, natural language processing, hierarchical clustering to identify cancer subpopulations, network and relationship analysis, um, multi-phase financial models, um, what well, you've, you've used a massive range of um, of techniques there. Can you tell us a bit more about um, one or two of the techniques and, and what you were using it for? Yeah, of course. Um, so the the immediate one, just because for my own kind of the the story behind it, of the network and relationship analysis um, one is 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 something I did that was was part of my uh, job application for Equal Experts. So one of oh, cool. okay. so with a phone call with um, with with someone who who kind of brought me in for for interviews asked me what kind of data projects I was doing outside of outside of work, and um, I'd gotten sick of looking at numbers, so I wanted to try using doing analysis on words, and what I'd found was I was going to do um, analysis of the interactions and number of interactions and strengths of interactions between characters in Futurama. <laughs> and and so i made a network graph of the 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 amount of relationships and character character relationships and things formed between character between the characters in futurama and um how to look at how these different things are done in social media to uh, to show strengths of relationships and types of relationships between people and modeled how they would change over the different series of futurama and that that uh, basically, uh, I, the reason I picked that is that that analysis was both really fun, something I'd never done before, and kind of got my foot in the door at Equal Experts. So uh, that one has a as a as a nice kind of place in my heart, just being a a kind of passion project of mine that that ended up getting me a, a my dream job. Wow. So how did you go about that then? I mean, you, you must have had to get the scripts from somewhere, and then which. Oh, how did you analyze it i thought so there was there was a um i can't remember the name of the package now but i i can i can find it but the uh a lot of the the, the kind of network graphing scripts were were there just the access to the data wasn't so um so i had to build a web scraper for the kind of there was an online repository of futurama scripts but it wasn't in no an, way it wasn't in a decent source so i basically had to write a html scraper and clean up html text and then pass each line that a character was given into a single row in a data frame indexed by the series and episode number and then i could tell you who spoke what line and then that was summed up to give the number of interactions between people <laughs> that sounds very ambitious so before you even could start the first problem was getting the data in the first place um yeah I, I i knew it was possible to get but i just didn't know how at first but where there's a will there's a way so what did you then use to do the network analysis there was a like a as, as usual with this there was a handy r package that had quite a lot of the the nice the nice functions that would that would kind of help me um draw like the network graphs and show like the the different sizes of the interactions and and things um, like that and 
then on top of that, so I've, uh, I then did things like um, sentiment analysis and things uh, to have a look at, so I could play on the the strength of the uh, of the emotion being conveyed in the sentence as well. So I could then have a look and say like these two characters have a altogether positive relationship, and then if you know anything about Futurama, then ask the question: Is Fry, who is blissfully ignorant of everything, a happier person than Farnsworth, <laughs> who is the know-it-all scientist, based on kind of what they're what they're saying and how many humor, humorous things they say, just to kind of uh, um, and just just little questions that I decided to to answer my, uh, to ask myself and just went. Oh, based on what I know about the characters, this might be true. So let's go find that out. And it was, I just enjoyed playing around with text data rather than numbers for once. So are there, yeah. are there any conclusions you can take away from um, from the analysis, from a network graph of Futurama relationships? Um, the, you, you can see the main characters that started off, at the, like the, there's the core main characters, like the, the Bender, Leela, Fry who stay the make the top three characters throughout the entire series. But they, they start introducing secondary characters that fall away in the later series as they realize that they weren't as popular as they wanted them to be, which is unfortunate because Zap Brannigan is one of them. Oh, really? And yeah, Zap Brannigan is in the first few, ser- the first, um, f- first few ser- seasons and then his, um, he's sort of relegated to kind of bit episodes. Oh, you also see um, in the the middle seasons when people start doing cameo episodes, as you see, there's a lot less of the secondary support characters as more as the as the kind of diversity of characters increases purely because of cameos. Hmm. Uh, Luke, Luke. Yeah, yeah. Were you able to visualize the networks? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I I had the networks of the a, a lot of the main main characters. I didn't make it for every single character. And then zoom out all the way, just because for a, like a, a PowerPoint presentation that I was giving, it it was too zoomed out to do anything. So I, I kind of called some of the the the, the bit characters, uh, and then um, viewed that over the different and and showed how that changed over the different series, and then and then summed them all up for the whole show. Horsefly is a data science-driven provider of talent analytics solutions with offices in Manchester and Liverpool. The data scientists code in Python every day. If you love data and have a natural curiosity to dive into a data set, get in touch with Horsefly or reach out to PyData and we can pass you on. Check out their website in the show notes. Without the support of Horsefly Analytics, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. All right, well, so with, with so many um, techniques uh, and so many tools for Python and R, um, do you have any, what are your go-to tools for Python or R or any specialist sort of niche tools that you use in either of those that you want to highlight? Um, as you've kind of mentioned, like a lot of my experience is on a very broad range. So I, I, I don't feel I've got the the depth of experience yet to kind of go in and, here's a, and, and say, here's a really niche tool that you need to, that you need to use. I think that all the ones that I would mention are kind of the, the broad data, like uh, data handling tools, like, like Tidyverse for R and kind of Pandas NumPy kind of for Python. Um, the one that I, I, I think that, that its power is also, that it's sometimes neglected, especially from like the, the initial phases of like exploring data and showing data to people is, um, is a dashboarding tool. I think being able to being able to pull in data and show and show it to people and have that be interactive for people is a really good way of getting questions back very quickly. So if I send someone a dashboard and go, here's all of your data, you can filter it any way you like. They're more of an expert on their data than I am. I'm just the data person. I can I I can give them the tools, but but a lot of times if you give them the ability to kind of self serve they'll come back with some really interesting questions you'd have never have thought of because you've not been in the industry 20 years. So um, you can pick any kind of dashboarding tool you want. Like the, There's a lot of them and they all basically fill the same niche. But yeah, I, I definitely feel like a dashboarding tool is, a, is, a, is an underlooked and underappreciated tool. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought about doing that as a way to... Um stimulate 
discussion with your with your clients at sort of the I guess the early phases of a project yeah definitely yeah yeah I think I've always thought of dashboards as being sort of the end the end goal for a lot of projects um so I think it's really cool that you're using it in a in that kind of way can you name any that you what what are your favorite ones uh, the actual tools I mean, yeah, dashboard tools. Yeah. yeah. So the the, ma- the major one I use is um, is Power BI, uh, which uh, okay. I, I found to pr- I, I think is probably the most powerful one I've I've, I've used, but it mm-hmm. it definitely looks less cool than Tableau or like it it still looks like a mid two thousands Microsoft product, but don't let that fool you. Okay, noted. Um, brilliant. So. Tidyverse, Pandas, NumPy, and dashboarding tools like Tableau and Power BI. Yep. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and finally, uh, we ask everyone this question, and that is, can you tell us who you admire in the tech industry or the tech community? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm prepared for a massive cop-out answer. In oh um, oh, I, I've worked well, I've worked with quite a few different different people and um, quite a few of the kind of consultants, at, at equal experts, and one of the things that I've found um, kind of common to them all, and I found this absolutely brilliant, is um, their willingness to help and knowledge share. Of um, the, I, so it's the kind of those qualities that I that I admire, of the fact that if. If people are so, so, so some of the people I've been working with know that I don't have the fifteen years consulting experience that they do. I before a meeting or after a meeting with a client, they'll that will they'll talk through kind of uh, what the plan is, or to kind of help me give me give me a bit of advice and a bit of steer, or give me advice on how I should do things. So like absorbing the clients in lingo as fast as possible. Um, that was given to me by that. That information was given me to by a consultant. I wouldn't. Have, it, I would have had to realize that on my own, like in a year's time after um, not delivering to the best potential I can. So people's uh, people's ability to be friendly and nice is and kind of always kind of like always give you help when when you need it is is something that I really like about kind of the data community. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I think good mentorship is, is key to everyone's development. And it doesn't matter what level you are in your, in your role or how many years experience you have. Um, everyone can benefit from mentorship for sure. Mm-hmm. Good communication skills come up again. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Communication is key. Um, do you want any anyone you want to call out by name? So or yeah, possible? so one of the projects I worked with, I worked with a consultant in Germany called Robin Gower. He was um, he was absolutely brilliant. Um, he's a ex ex econometrics. He did so like the statistics behind the eco- economics. I'd never heard of that kind of area before. Um, it sounds really interesting. Mm. um yeah he was he was absolutely brilliant brilliant well that is all we've got time for today um thank you so much adam for coming on that was so interesting yeah thank you very much thanks for taking the time yeah thank you for having me it's been brilliant thanks bye bye bye